said, whenever you find yourself facing human suffering, you have to do what your heart tells you. Welcome to the 92nd episode of St. Dimphna's Playbook, the SDP, if you want to be cool, a production of the Grexley Podcast Network. My name is Tommy. I'm a cradle Catholic, a marriage and family therapist, a husband and father of five boys, four on earth and one in heaven. I love you, Luke. And I'm here to fill the void of Catholic conversations about mental health because I want all of us to be open to listening to our heart and to God speaking to us through our heart whenever we come face to face with human suffering. And let's all pray that we will act accordingly. We like to kick it off around here with a quick refresh of our notifications. It's time for St. Dymphna's Mentions. I received a topic request that I thought I'd explore to get us started, the topic of mental health in interfaith marriages. Let's start by praying for everyone in an interfaith marriage or discerning an interfaith marriage that God may pour grace into their hearts and that they may always feel loved and welcomed by the Catholic community. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Next, it's important to start with these thoughts. Interfaith marriages are everywhere and aren't new to our generation. They can be just as faith-filled and loving as a single-faith marriage. They can lead to holiness for both spouses and they can include certain challenges. In terms of the impact on mental health, we'll start with some thoughts from Very Well Mind that help us understand the challenges and what we can do to move through them. When it comes to an interfaith marriage, you will need to consider the challenges that lie ahead. Here's an overview of some of the most common mistakes people in interfaith marriages make. Ignoring your religious differences, believing that religious affiliations are unimportant in the long term, discounting that some decisions that cannot be compromised, such as circumcision, baptism, bris, tithing, and more, um, believing that differences will always be irreconcilable in your interfaith marriage, failing to recognize the importance of understanding, respecting, accepting, and dealing with your religious differences in your interfaith marriage, assuming that you understand all of one another's faith issues, failing to discuss certain concerns prior to your marriage about your children's religious upbringing specifically, forcing your beliefs upon your partner, turning the holidays into a competition between your faiths, forcing your children to feel as if they must choose between their father or their mother's religion, giving in so much that you lose your own traditions and ultimately your own self-respect. So back to me, that's a lot to have to think about as we navigate these challenges for the sake of our mental health and the emotional well-being of our spouse and family as a whole. But thinking about it ahead of time and being willing to seek out help during our marriage may be a good plan for success. A little more from Very Well Mind to wrap this topic up. Marrying outside your own faith requires the two of you to be especially mature, respectful, and compromising to have a successful long-term relationship. It will take a significant amount of effort to not let external influences cause irreparable damage between you both, such as in-laws or grandparents, along with your internal differences in religious backgrounds. Take the time before you marry to explore these concerns with each other or a neutral outside professional. And if it's too late, if you're already married and you're having some difficulty navigating this territory, seek out professional help as soon as possible. 
So each episode, I'm going to introduce you to a saint who can help us along our journey with mental health and wellness as Catholics. It's called Friend Request, and today I'm going to introduce you to St. Mary McKillop. Born in 1842 in what is now Melbourne, Australia, she was baptized six weeks after birth and given the name Maria Ellen. Her father had begun studies for the priesthood at the age of 12, but left at the age of 29, just before he was about to be ordained. He met Mary's mother, and the two went on to have eight children, with Mary being the oldest. Mary's father was a wonderful father and husband, but kind of a terrible farmer, and because of the the because the family faced plenty of hard times, uh, Mary had to help out by becoming a governess at the age of 16. And this led to her meeting a parish priest named Father Julian Tennyson Woods, who would eventually invite Mary and her sisters to come help open a Catholic school in 1866. Mary and her sisters helped start the school and saw it as the great work God had set out for their lives. They began wearing habits and taking on the name the Sisters of St. Joseph of the Sacred Heart. They opened more schools, developed a rule of life that was approved by the bishops, and became known around the area as the Brown Joeys, thanks to the color of their habits. The bishop who approved this rule, however, was in ill health and not able to govern the diocese, which led to friction between the clergy and the laity. And sadly, a campaign to discredit Mary's order popped up, as well as allegations of financial incompetence. Rumors were also spread that Mary had a drinking problem. Father Charles Horan OFM met with them, uh, met with the bishop in September of 1871 and convinced him that he should request the order's constitution be changed in a way that could have left the nuns homeless. The following day, when Mary did not accede to that request, the bishop excommunicated her, citing insubordination as the reason. Most of the schools were closed after this, and it wasn't until the bishop found himself on his deathbed that he lifted the excommunication. An Episcopal commission later completely exonerated her. Mary then traveled to Rome to have the rules of life approved by Pope Pius IX and returned two years later with that approval. And in 1885, Pope Leo XIII officially approved the order as a congregation. Mary died in 1909, and the archbishop who sat beside her as she passed said, quote, I consider this day to have assisted at the deathbed of a saint. What a life. We like to close out this part of the podcast with a prayer. Ever generous God, you inspired St. Mary MacKillop to live her life faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ and constant in bringing hope and encouragement to those who were disheartened, lonely, or needy. With confidence in your generous providence and joining with St. Mary MacKillop, we ask that you grant our request that everyone listening to this podcast experiences the love of God poured into their hearts this very day. We ask that our faith and hope be fired afresh by the Holy Spirit so that we too, like Mary MacKillop, may live with courage, trust, and openness. Ever generous God, hear our prayer. We ask this through Christ Jesus. Amen. And now you can't do therapy over Twitter, but I'm happy to take your tweets and help you explore a bit in the hopes of finding a light in the darkness. It's time for Twitter therapy. Anonymous gets us started. I see the benefits and necessity of medication in treating the hormonal deficiency side of depression, and I support my wife 100% in that. My concern isn't necessarily with medication itself, but the idea that medication is being prescribed in higher doses in order to treat issues that are more psychological versus biological. 
Here's a good example, and I'll take what the person said uh, about using insulin. So let's say I go to see my endocrinologist and my A1C is 7.9, and the doctor might say, okay, let's increase your insulin dose. But all he has to go by is the numbers. He's not necessarily seeing my habits that are leading to high blood sugar, i.e. not doing my insulin on time, not counting carbs correctly, not using my pump correctly, etc. So just like an endocrinologist might keep prescribing more and more insulin without addressing the root cause, I worry about a doctor's inclination to just keep increasing the dosage. Also, and, and I do understand the idea of, well, this is where an in involved therapist comes in, but that is an area where both my wife and I have struggled for a while. You always hear ask for help, but when you can't get an appointment, providers fall out of network. It can get very easy to get discouraged. So what's a young Catholic couple to do? Let's all start by joining together in prayer for Anonymous, his wife, and everyone seeking help for depression, that God may bring compassionate and caring helping professionals into their lives in an accessible manner. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. First, I want to say what a blessing it is that you are there for your wife, supporting her as she reaches out for help and getting treatment uh, for the symptoms that she's experiencing. And I really appreciate your example about treatment for diabetes as an analogy for treating mental health. I always think it's a good idea to consider mental health in this manner because no one would say that we should just toughen up and make our diabetes go away on our own. Often we require medical interventions to manage our diabetes, and similarly, we can need medical interventions to manage our depression. Of course, the approach to wellness needs to be holistic, as you mentioned. So in addition to taking our medication for diabetes, we should also try to maintain a proper diet or keep an eye on our blood sugar. And similarly with depression, we should try to maintain a healthy lifestyle, utilize our coping skills, and increase our social support for when times get tough. However, I think it's important to point out that the biological issues associated with depression and the psychological issues associated with depression play off each other. When we experience low levels of serotonin in our brain, we typically experience symptoms of depression, including feeling sad, upset, and in a generally low mood. This leads us to have less of an ability to work on the psychological issues, less motivation to do the things we need to do in order to feel better. And those psychological issues that we mentioned before can also lead to a change in our serotonin, a literal change in how our brain is functioning, which just keeps the cycle going. So often medication is a key to healing with those psychological issues by working on our biology so that we can even have the motivation or interest or hope required to engage in those coping skills and changes to our life to get us feeling better. It's worth noting a couple of things about dosages. First, most people often start off with a small dose that is meant to ensure the medication won't cause side effects, but needs to be increased to an effective dose to treat the symptoms. Additionally, medications that have been working can often need to be adjusted as time moves on or as our biology changes. So I would see increases in medication as something best guided by our doctor and ourselves in a partnership where we all work to understand the reasons behind the increases. I hope I'm not rambling, but I just want to ensure everyone understands how linked these two sides of depression are and how vital it is to be open to treating them both under the guidance of a helping professional. As for the inaccessibility of mental health professionals, all I can say is that you aren't alone. Our mental health system is broken and makes connecting to helping professionals so hard, especially for those of us who are already feeling depressed, anxious, unmotivated, etc. We have to work to change this to make good mental health care easily accessible for all. 
if you have private insurance, I would suggest working with your member services department to ensure you get connected to someone in network who can help. And if you have Medicaid, be sure to call your county's mental health access line to get connected to someone. And if you're feeling too depressed to take on that task, don't worry. It's okay to ask someone you trust to help you get connected. And we'll all pray for each other that connecting to the help we need can be as smooth as possible. A different anonymous is up next. I am a wife and a stay-at-home mom of four young kiddos. I've been battling severe depression for almost a year now, and my biggest struggles are around how the depression affects the rest of my family. Do you have any advice for balancing a daily examine around relationships with the positive self-talk my therapist urges? Let's start by praying for Anonymous, everyone battling with severe depression and the negative self-talk that goes along with feelings that we're letting people down, that God may give us peace and a clear path toward healing. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thine intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee do I come. Before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy hear and answer me. Amen. First off, I understand your feelings about the struggle of seeing how our depression impacts our relationship with our family. And at the same time, I want to remind you and everyone listening that whatever happens because of our depression, it isn't our fault. If you could just simply choose to not be depressed and to be able to give your family the perfect experience in terms of your relationship with them, you would, right? But it's not that easy. So it becomes a situation of A, cutting yourself some slack and giving yourself some time and space to not feel okay and to be okay because you know you're working to get better and be an opportunity to ask for help from those around you who can step in and help you with your family life, especially when you're having a bad day, bad week, etc. In terms of balancing a daily examine, I want to say how amazing it is that you're still thinking about this in the midst of all you're going through. It is a beautiful example. And I want to note that issues caused by your mental health are not ones that you should consider as sinful when you're doing your examine, as your mental health impacts your ability to engage your full consent of the will. When we're feeling depressed and can't find the motivation or energy or joy in playing with our kids, helping out around the house, etc., that isn't a sin. It's a sign that we need to get help and support for all that we're going through. And that's so important to remember and continue to call to mind because our brains are so entrenched in negative self-talk, negative assessments of ourselves, And we have to balance that with the reality that our mental health impairs our ability to function as we'd like at times. And that's not something that we need to bring to confession. It might be a great practice for all of us to consider an examination of our mental health before an examination of conscience as a way of helping inform our examine, taking a minute to explore how we were feeling during that day, how our mental health impaired us or kept us from doing what we would have otherwise done if we were feeling better, and then jumping into our examine after that so we can properly understand our behaviors during the day in their proper context. I hope all of that helps, and please be assured of our continued prayers. Lori brings us on home. Could you share a little about food addiction, OCD, and the idea of being obsessed with food and eating it compulsively? First off, let's join together in prayer for everyone living with difficulties around food, body image, obsessive and intrusive thoughts, that God may give them peace of mind and fill their hearts with his love. 
Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Thank you so much for bringing this topic up for us to discuss on the podcast. It's such an important one that impacts so many of our sisters and brothers. There is most certainly a correlation between eating disorders and OCD. In fact, multiple studies have shown that those with eating disorders have statistically higher rates of OCD, anywhere from 11 to 69%. We'll we'll look uh, next to the Eating Disorder Hope website for more information on being obsessed with food and compulsively eating. Many times I receive a desperate call from someone who identifies themselves as being a food addict or a compulsive eater. When this person arrives at my office, they may or may not be overweight, but they most certainly are overwhelmed and tortured with self-deprecating thoughts about their lack of self-control and willpower to stop binge eating when they are no longer hungry. They describe themselves as experiencing urges to eat excessive amounts of food mindlessly or to eat so that they numb out from uncomfortable feelings such as anxiety, anger, or fear. These individuals are consumed with thoughts about food and their next binge episode or for the next opportunity to get their fix, often in secrecy. Back to me, the situation described above is binge eating disorder, and here's a little bit more on that from the same site. Binge eating disorder, or BED, is characterized by recurring episodes of eating significantly more food in a short period of time than most people would eat under similar circumstances, with episodes marked by feelings of lack of self-control. This disorder is associated with marked distress and occurs on average at least once a week over three months. Binge or compulsive overeating includes some or all of the following features which occur regularly at least three times per week, eating faster than usual, eating past the point of fullness, eating when not physically hungry, eating alone or in secret, feeling upset or guilty after overeating, feeling that you are abnormal, feeling taken over or driven as if by another presence in respect to eating. As I mentioned previously, individuals who seek treatment for compulsive eating also may identify themselves as being food addict, a food addict, referring to a preoccupation with their substance of food. They will describe their eating episodes much like a person who is addicted to drugs or alcohol. In a similar way, there was controversy surrounding binge eating disorder and its placement in the DSM-5. The urges experienced by those with binge eating disorder are similar to the urges experienced to some impulse control disorders such as trichotillomania, which is compulsive hair pulling, and pathological gambling. This would suggest the possibility that binge eating disorder could potentially be conceptualized as an impulse control disorder. There were further debates that compulsive overeaters expressed their challenges with food similarly to those who struggle with obsessive compulsive disorder or OCD. And although uh, BED has compulsive and obsessive features to it, there are too many significant differences that would not warrant binge eating disorder as a type of OCD. So back to me one final time. All of that to say that there is still a lot of conversations going on in the mental health community around this experience and how best to categorize it. However, that shouldn't leave us feeling hopeless. There are evidence-based treatments for OCD and for binge eating disorder that are effective and can help us regain the peace God so desperately wants us to experience. If this is an experience that you're walking through, reach out for help, ask for support, ask for someone to assist you with reaching out for help, and know that we will be praying for you. 
All right, everyone, that's it for today's episode. Remember, you can email, DM, or tweet your questions and situations if you'd like me to address them in a future episode. I'd be happy to keep you anonymous or not, whatever you want. Be sure to check out patreon.com slash grexley to see all the great things they've got going on over there and support the cause. You can also head over to the Ave Maria website to pre-order the St. Dimpna's Playbook book that's due out in November. Until next time, go easy on yourselves take care of yourselves. And if you feel like you're in a place where you can't even bring yourself to pray, don't worry. I'll be praying for you. And so will St. Dimphna.